Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. Welcome to this episode of the Catalyst Podcast, where I interview Barbara Zabawa, and she is the founder and president of Wellness Law, a legal compliance company dedicated to improving wellness law compliance for health and wellness professionals and companies. Now, this is a great episode because we're going to talk about the future of telemedicine. If you're a practitioner wondering what's going to happen when these telemedicine laws are being retracted post-COVID, and she talks about the future of telemedicine. She is diving into a 50-state survey about how medical boards view coaching and medical licensure. This is definitely a topic in a lot of functional and holistic spheres. And we talk about how the law views this kind of new wellness arena with holistic and functional medicine. She's going to talk about collecting biometric data. Is that helpful? Is that harmful in a corporate wellness setting? There's a lot of great topics that we talk about. She's the founder of Pursuas, a mission-based fashion company as well that promotes pocketwear tank for gender equality. She's also founder of Lemon Spark, a movement and podcast celebrating the sparks that lead people to meaningful pursuits after experiencing life's lemons. She's the lead author of the book, Rule the Rules on Workplace Wellness Programs, published by the American Bar Association. She's an author of The Tug, Finding Purpose and Joy Through Entrepreneurship published by Henschel House Publishing in spring 2021. She's a writer, a speaker. She's amazing. Listen into this interview and the show notes will include where you can contact her at wellnesslaw.com. Enjoy our interview. Hello, Barbara. I am so glad to have you on the Catalyst podcast. This is a treat because as we focus on small, teeny things that can catalyze the innovation of healthcare, not just in patient care, but really practitioner wellness, anti-burnout, feeling more flow channeled, we're noticing this transition of a lot of practitioners being a little disenfranchised with the current system and thinking, boy, it's really handicapping me from being able to deliver medicine in the way I would like. So a lot of practitioners are migrating more towards a wellness focus. And that is exactly what Barbara does. So Barbara, thank you for joining us as an attorney specializing in wellness law. Please uh, go ahead and give us a little intro. Thank you so much, Laura, for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about wellness law. It's something I'm very passionate about. I started my own law firm in wellness law uh, almost nine years ago now. And it really was to fill in the gap that I saw in the legal services market of attorneys not really helping individuals, practitioners, organizations that are on what I call the fringe of healthcare. You know, you have the traditional healthcare medical complex where 
lawyers who practice health law are focused. So representing hospitals, representing physician clinics, representing pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies and all of the major players and stakeholders in the healthcare world because healthcare is highly, highly regulated. And then you have all these other individuals and organizations that have formed around what we call alternative healthcare practices or what I also call wellness related practices, things that I guess in a short way of defining it aren't covered by insurance typically. Right. <laughs> They're delivering health related services, but not through an insurance model. They're usually cash based models. So concierge practices or just virtual, especially since COVID, a lot of virtual practices that are delivering more coaching services and and other alternative practitioners who are maybe call themselves naturopaths or they're into Reiki or other mindfulness kinds of practices. Anyway, those individuals and organizations that serve in that capacity really didn't have lawyers who understood what they were trying to do, who specialized in the laws to the extent there are any laws <laughs> that right? uh, govern that govern uh, those practice areas. And yes, there are laws that govern those practice areas, but a little bit more indirectly as opposed to directly. You know, when you are a licensed healthcare provider working in a clinic or a hospital or a nursing home, you, it's pretty clear what laws apply to you. And there's a lot of them. And that's part of the reason why I think a lot of healthcare practitioners are fleeing the traditional healthcare world. <laughs> right, right. Well, but in, in wellness, it's not as defined because a lot of it's just not regulated directly by licensing boards because a lot of people in wellness don't have a license. They might have certifications from private organizations. And it was interesting, I had a conversation with someone yesterday who, believed that a national certification from a private entity was the same thing as having a license issued by a state licensing board. And I had to explain to them that it is not <laughs> anywhere near the same. So, <laughs> right. No, these are important distinctions. And I think it is walking that fine line of we do need regulation. We can't just have somebody hang a shingle and say, yep, I did a weekend course. I am now a licensed practitioner. I can practice medicine. There's all these fuzzy areas of wellness and medicine where people are pushing the boundaries of what might be considered, you know, negligent or malpractice, you know, mm -hmm. um, offering services that, you know, can be tagged as medicine. But then this is where I get my mind blown is the longer I'm in this space, both as a conventional or alternative or holistic, whatever label you want to use, I see that wellness and medicine can be in so many different forms. We have indigenous practices, shamanism, we have all these things that can heal people. And so who are we to tag that and say, well, that's medicine, or that's not medicine, or, you know, and, and I'm glad that you're entering 
or you have occupied this space of wellness law, because this is much needed when we have this ushering in of respect of different modalities of healing and understanding that people may need to pull from different kinds of medicine, whether it's a traditional insurance program or not. So tell me about like what you think is being in wellness law, what have been some of the most interesting things you've seen in the last 10 years or so that have been occupying more of your curiosity or your time to investigate it in the sphere of wellness? Yeah, well, when I started my law practice uh, nine years ago, I started with workplace wellness, corporate wellness, uh, where, you know, employers create these programs to help employees feel more healthy, I guess, and more productive to reduce absenteeism. Sure. Those were the metrics that were critical for the investment by these corporations to uh, and into workplace wellness programs. And there are a number of laws that are specific to corporate wellness. And, and so that occupied a lot of my time and it still does. But when I first started, there was just this heavy emphasis on collecting data from employees through biometric screens, through health risk assessments. And there was a lot of lawsuits around that data collection where the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, or employees would bring these cases against these companies that were harshly penalizing employees who refused to participate in these biometric screens or health risk assessment activities. And the reason why there was pushback from the employees was because it's an invasion of privacy. They felt like, you know, their employee employer had no business learning all their biometric data and then they didn't know what was going on with that data. And of course there was this sure. fear that they'd be penalized at work somehow if if their employer discovered, you know, whatever about them and from a health perspective. There's been a shift since then. I think fewer employers are conducting those kinds of biometrics and HRAs. It's still very much alive, but I think when you attend conferences that are centered around workplace wellness initiatives, it there's definitely an emphasis on other holistic ways that employers can create a more welcoming, inclusive environment that, you know, it enhances well-being as opposed to collecting data. So that's been one shift. And another shift, though, has been, in, at least in my practice, this just exponential growth of people, as I had mentioned, fleeing traditional healthcare, nurses in particular, but doctors as well, and physical therapists and physician assistants and, you know, all kinds of different licensed professionals looking for another way to use their skills. I think COVID definitely accelerated that, that exodus. Right. <laughs> it was starting to happen before COVID. And I think it's be part in part because of all of these really incredible virtual platforms that have kind of exploded onto the marketplace that make delivering these services really easy out of your own home. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people are attracted to that whole idea of working from home, having more flexibility, and then COVID hit and that just went through the roof. Um, right. So the technology was already there, but then COVID just 
made it go even to overdrive, both from the burnout perspective of, of licensed practitioners wanting to leave and find a different way and the technology really just even getting better as far as being able to deliver uh, services remotely. So that has been a huge shift in my practice. And I think overall in the marketplace, so you have a lot of individuals who who want to help. I mean, that's why they got into healthcare in the first place and are finding that traditional healthcare services, are, they feel underpaid, they feel overworked, they feel just burnt out, as I think you probably know, and, right. and they want some freedom and wellness, not just with the technology and being able, being able to deliver it from wherever, but again, from the regulation standpoint, there's just, you know, they're not subject to HIPAA. If they're not billing insurance, they're technically not a HIPAA covered entity. So they're free from those shackles, even though they should also you know, try to be right. There's the common sense. Yeah. There's the common sense, polite, you know, customary practices that I think we should still have, but you're right. The, the exodus into a modality like coaching just comes with a lot looser restrictions and, you know, less of the microscope that you're put under. And so it feels like this very easy transition to a lateral move where a lot of practitioners are saying, well, well, screw it. I'm not going to worry about, you know, being a physician or a nurse. I'm just going to be a coach. And that's not degrading coaches or, or, you know, exalting them to a higher pedestal either, because coaches, you can have good or bad coaches. I think coaches are awesome because they are the ones that can get those patients or clients to move one little tiny step at a time. Cause that's really how we can make great change is, is getting that support in, in place. And we know we have the worst chronic disease. Americans are living less you know, lives were we're dying earlier. So we obviously need something to help us. It's not the once every six month doctor visit that's keeping you healthy and alive because the, the doctor doesn't have time to go into some of these really minute details of putting together a wellness plan that can help you. But also, I, I think there's a bunch of myths out there and a bunch of concerns that licensed practitioners should know when they're considering a change into a coaching modality. You know, a lot of practitioners think it's super easy. I'm just going to stop or I'm just going to continue working. And then I'm just going to be a coach on the side. You know, I'll be a doctor at this hospital and then I'll be a coach on the side. And and with this disclaimer I'm about to say, I know that I'll put you on the spot and you're absolutely welcome to share your opinion. But just like doctors have many opinions, attorneys have many opinions, right? And so, you know, there isn't one right way to deliver a prescription or medicine. There's not one right way to say this is absolute truth in the law. I mean, there's risk tolerances. Some people can do things and if they sleep at night and they know they're putting themselves at risk, I mean, that's up to them. So I'm going to ask you a question that probably can be loaded and we might have some attorneys calling us saying, but if you don't mind sharing your opinion, can you practice medicine in one place and be a coach on the side. I'll start with that that one question. Is that possible? Or I shouldn't say, is it possible? What should people consider to think about when they're considering staying in their one place of occupation, but then also hanging a shingle as a coach? It's absolutely possible. In fact, I think that's what most of my clients are doing because they're not ready to completely cut the cord, but they're hoping that their side gig will thrive enough to the point where they can quit their day job, if you will, as a licensed practitioner. That's the that's the ultimate goal. But they want to, you know, 
wade in shallow waters first and see how test the waters first. And the one thing that I try to help my clients with who are in that boat is to make sure that they are they separate um, their licensed profession from their unlicensed profession. Because if you have a website that talks about how you are this world-renowned phys- renowned physician and you are you know delivering these services now worldwide you know through your coaching practice um <laughs> that can create confusion in the marketplace so you if you get a client from a state where you're not licensed to practice medicine for example then you're you're engaging in a crime because the unlicensed practice of medicine is a crime in all the 50 states. So you can't do that. So if you want to do coaching on the side while still practicing medicine where you have a license in the states, you have a license, you have to separate your coaching practice. You have to have a website that really is sanitized. You, know, you can say that you have this education, but you have to be very clear that you're not practicing medicine and you have to actually not practice medicine. <laughs> right, right. And that's that's a key. I, I'm glad you said that because that is the what's up for debate too, is like, what do we consider practicing medicine? Obviously, diagnosing is, is practicing medicine. Prescribing is practicing medicine. What other things would fall under that category of practicing medicine? Yeah, well... when If you're coaching, you're, your job is really to educate, inform, support, mm-hmm. help people set goals, help people hold, hold people accountable to meeting those goals. It's not about doing an assessment, you know, looking at someone's individual characteristics from their health perspective, you know, so conducting um, like a health risk assessment <laughs> again, mm-hmm. and then tailoring your advice on what they should do based on their particular conditions um, because that that is the job of a licensed professional. And so whenever you get into more of a tailored approach for each client, like I'm going to look at your individual health yes, and then I'm going to prescribe, maybe not a drug, but I'm going to prescribe a solution for you based on your individual health needs that can get into more risky Practice. Yes, right. And I, I, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because that I see so often, even with direct-to-consumer products, we see this all the time now. Oh, we'll just review your labs and we'll give you a recommended mm-hmm. supplement regimen. And then I'm looking at this going, wait, this is coming from an algorithm and from a factory and from obviously a for-profit business that just wants to sell you the supplements. Mm-hmm. And then I look and see people saying they're a coach, but yet they want to review your labs and they want to tell you what supplements to take. And I'm going, but wait, how is that not medicine? And so there is some fogginess. And mm-hmm. and how do you advise people that <laughs> may say, well, I just want to coach. I don't want to prescribe. I don't, but but can I review data and labs like biometrics? Is that practicing medicine if they're reviewing lab results? Like help us clarify that. Yeah. Well, technically it is more, I mean, as I said, it's definitely more risky. And and you said something earlier that I think is really important. Uh, and it ties to something I said earlier, which is really important. We're in, when, in wellness, it's not as regulated 
there's not as much defined safe and unsafe. <laughs> right. Practices. The world hasn't caught up to the reality of the marketplace, the, the legal world, the regulatory world, the governments of the world haven't caught up, hasn't caught up to that reality of the marketplace that wellness is really growing and people are wanting it. And so uh, we did a, a 50 state survey. Um, one of my uh, a law student um, and myself did a 50 state survey of all the state medical boards in the U.S. And ask them the question, if you learned that there was a coach practicing in your state and they may have maybe, you know, engaging in the unlicensed practice of medicine, what would you do? <laughs> and 95% of the state medical board said they'd do nothing. They just, it, it's not a priority for them unless somebody got hurt. If somebody got hurt, that's a whole another, another matter. But sure. if it was just a complaint from someone and like another physician in the community feeling threatened that, you know, some unlicensed person was technically engaging in the unlicensed practice of medicine, the medical board would may issue a cease and desist letter, may not. It, you know, it's just not something on their radar screen is what we gathered. Now, this was about a year ago that we did this state survey. Maybe things have changed, but and we just did the medical boards. We didn't do like dietetics boards, which right. are a little bit more active, I think, in this space than medical medical boards. Right, right. So it's, it's not just medical boards. You have to look at nursing boards. You have to look at, you know, we didn't do a survey of all the different boards that could possibly take an enforcement action. But that told us, at least in that point in time, that even though there may be technical violations of the law, there's not a lot of appetite at this moment from some of the licensing boards to do anything about it. It's just not a priority. Are you a functional or integrator practitioner looking to grow a unique and self-expressive practice that is flow channeled and anti-burnout? That's exactly what I do in Catalyst Studio Mentorship. This is a 12-month experience where you join other like-minded practitioners. You get access to all of my SOPs, my templates, online curriculum. You have access to private one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions with me and weekly studio time masterminds where we combine our minds and we co-create the future of medicine. You get access to quarterly legal lounges as well as guest experts like public speaking, coaching, financial gurus, and attorneys like Barbara Zabawa from today. This is exactly what I needed when I started my practice six years ago. And I teach others how they can form their own functional or integrative medicine membership that can grow and scale to their needs. Join our community. It is absolutely wonderful. It is enlivening, joyful. It's a safe place to let your hair down and you get lots of perks like access to a graphic design team that can create assets for you, a welcome kit with lots of swag, and again, a lot of community support. Head to drlarasalier.com forward slash catalyst to learn more. I can see how that feels 
appropriate. And I feel like maybe I'm pessimistic. I think that might change because I, I feel like sometimes we eat our young. We eat, it's the egos of the people in the same licensure as you. I've heard of cases of physicians reporting other physicians or nurses reporting other nurses. And so then you get the medical board of that state kind of looking at that person and there's cases going on, especially California is a hot mess. There's so many things going on there. And so I just feel like pessimistic that this will ever be an easy thing for us to do because I feel like there's always some little thing they can uncover. And like you said, it'll take one person to get hurt, unfortunately, and then we're going to start to direct our attention. Right. Um, do you feel when people, and you mentioned sanitizing a website, making it very obvious that you're only practicing as a coach, um, that you're delivering those services. What about when you, I've heard other people speak that say, once you're always a nurse or once you're a nurse, you're always a nurse. Once you're a doctor, you're always a doctor. So that if something did happen, then, then maybe the court system would say, well, but you have medical training, even though you're retired, you know better, you know, you should yeah. know better. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think the more you promote yourself as the licensed professional or, you know, the professional, the coach with this background, you know, I have medical background, I have a nursing background and something would go wrong. Um, you know, you'd have malpractice action against you. I do think that you could be subject to the standard of care that would be held to other licensed physicians. If you're a physician or nurses, if you're a nurse. So, so yes, I mean, the more I, the more you emphasize that credential, the more likely it is that you'll be held to that standard. Whereas if you know, you're not a licensed professional uh, and somebody gets hurt, you know, you're not going to be held to the same standard that a physician would be or a nurse would be. Um, I don't know what standard you'd be held to. You'd be held to, you know, just a regular person standard. So, which isn't very high. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just something to keep in mind. That's one of the downsides. And I did want to go back to closing the loop on, you know, the wellness, because it's the wild west, there is, uh, a, no black and white answers oftentimes mm -hmm. when it comes to, can I do this or can't I do this? Right. Um, when it comes to legal uh, questions, it's usually this is more risky. This is less risky. And point. that continuum of risk that you have to find, where are you most comfortable? So again, going back to your comment about sleeping at night, some clients are able to sleep at night just fine with being at the higher end of the risk spectrum. And some clients want to be, at the lowest possible end of the risk spectrum as they can be. And they just are not tolerant of really any risk. And so they will steer clear of that. But yeah, I have clients that are run the gamut of, of risk tolerance. And that's something that we talk about. And my job as the wellness lawyer is to identify what the risk areas are. And, you know, to the best of my ability, the likelihood that those risks might come to fruition. And then after I inform my clients of that, it becomes a business decision for them. Right. What they're going to do with that information that I provided. Right. I love that. You are like kind of like the doctor of the law. Like you're basically giving them education and you're saying, here's what I see. 
you know, it's up to you whether you want to eat differently, exercise, take the medicine, not take the medicine. It's up to you. It's a numbers game, right? Here's your risk of having a heart attack. You know, here's your risk of being maybe having malpractice or whatever, but like it's your decision. And then you arrange the agreements, the consents to kind of protect as best you can. But it is, it's like, how well can you sleep at night, you know? Um, and so looking at, you know, the telemedicine COVID allowances are going to be diminishing going back to pre-COVID times. I'm seeing a lot of practitioners really eager to continue what they could do in telemedicine, but maybe launching programs or online courses. You know, I, I've I've taught how to do that for years before COVID because it's just such a nice way to educate and you make sure this is not a patient-physician relationship. This is education only. There's all these disclaimers. But do you have any new ways, new considerations, I should say, where people should be mindful if they are excited to launch an online course that might be available across the world in states they're not licensed in, any extra little advice you might give that practitioner just to help lower their risk? Well, I I, I mean, the, I think the important point is as we retract from the telemedicine flexibilities that COVID allowed us, it's important to remember that you need a license wherever your patients slash clients are located. If you are practicing a licensed profession, medicine, nursing, whatever it might be, you need to be licensed where your patients are. So it's not enough that you have a license in the state where you reside. Yes. <laughs> you say it again. Oh my gosh. Yes. I've had so many people saying, yeah, mm -hmm. your, your patients are. So if you're in Wisconsin, where I am, and you have a patient in California that you're seeing via telemedicine and they're just seeing you directly. It's not a provider to provider kind of consult, but it's a provider to patient consult. If you don't have a license in California, you're practicing the unlicensed practice of medicine. Right. In California. And the licensing board in California can take Yep. Do you yes. ask what's the licensing board in Wisconsin? Right. Because they, you know, you're, you're supposed to abide by the laws, you know, professional conduct in the administrative code uh, in Wisconsin. And that includes, you know, not violating any laws relating to the practice of medicine. So if you're practicing medicine in a state without a license, you're violating a law that relates to the practice of medicine. Ooh. I have a question, and this probably does not pertain to Wisconsin because not many people want to travel to Wisconsin except in the summer. Um, but <laughs> there <is> are, <laughs> right, right. I mean, Wisconsin's lovely, but in the summer it's a lot better than the winter. But I have a lot of practitioners that live in states that are high tourist states. You know, they get people coming in. They're doing a lot of holistic, functional, integrative medicine. They have thriving practices. They get tourists that come in and visit and say, oh, I'd love to have like just a, a one 360 degree case review of, of what you might recommend for like a wellness plan. So what do you say to those practitioners? Because that patient is just visiting and they're going to go back to the state that they're not licensed in. Yeah. Well, there's provisions in the law that allow of course you can if a patient's in your state of residence seeing you where you're licensed that's fine and then there's a lot of times states have provisions that it's okay for a, an occasional follow-up if a patient has seen you in that capacity it's when it becomes more of a long-term frequent relationship right. and you don't hold a license in the state where that patient 
resides that it becomes a problem and, and for the walk. Right. That makes sense. And that's kind of been how it's been standard for as long as I know is, you know, it's that one time and then maybe a follow-up on the phone, which I find is so funny that a phone follow-up is not technically a telemedicine visit, right. you know? And so if you keep it on the phone, you're okay. But at the minute you put a Zoom on, it's a telemedicine visit, right. which is so funny. So as they, you know, retract these telemedicine laws, I think it's important if you're listening and you're a practitioner to really look at how you may want to either, if you've got patients that are in a state that you're not licensed in, you keep seeing more traffic from there, consider getting a license in that state, you know, so that you can continue being adherent to the law. Um, and as far as telemedicine, you know, laws go, I think, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think it's going to change in the future in five to 10 years? You have a, a little magic eight ball or a fortune ball where you can tell us what do you think might happen with telemedicine? Well, I think COVID really opened the eyes of a lot of regulators and uh, people in the industry that it's a good thing and a lot of people want it. The market mm -hmm. wants it. And as you see, these unlicensed individuals taking advantage because they can, uh, the licensed professions are going to have to really lobby for a more open market. Otherwise, it's going to get overtaken by people who aren't licensed. And, and so if they want to be able to compete for those individuals, I, I do think having that flexibility is going to be so important. And we have, you know, those compacts, state compacts that nursing is, I think, way far ahead in that regard than medicine is. But um, a lot of states have special licensing, more accelerated licensing statutes for telemedicine purposes. Like you can get a telehealth license and maybe it's not maybe as rigorous to get that license as it is to, if you were going to be practicing in the state in person. But even that is still kind of a hassle. So I think, you know, in order to really satisfy the market need for cross-border uh, practice, the laws are going to have to accommodate that. Um, otherwise, I think the licensed professions will suffer. Um, I agree. It's to address the burnout. It's to address yeah. the the needs of of patients um, and yeah, we have to start paying attention that the old way of practicing is just, yeah, it's still important to have those in-person absolutely um, exams, but, you know, a lot of stuff, COVID proved a lot of stuff can be done remotely and yeah, especially with the new technology, the wearables, some of the the data you can collect remotely to help keep patients healthy, especially during COVID, we saw that. And so I'm glad there's attorneys like you that have kind of been in this space already, kind of looking at the the foreshadowing of the future because it is insanity. I think Einstein was the one saying insanity is that definition of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And our current healthcare system is showing it is not giving us results. It is, it is killing people, frankly, it is really not supporting. Now, I'm saying this in a space where I have exited. Now, I do love that we are screening. We are definitely helping patients avoid colon cancer. All these things that we have, public health screenings and doctor's primary care are so needed. I still love my rural setting. And I think we will live and die by primary care is really one of my favorite specialties. However, 
they can't be responsible for everything. And that's kind of what has happened with the way our strategic specialists have had. Everything kind of kind of rolls down to primary care. And then they're the first ones on the front line. They're getting burned out or patients go to the ER if they can't get in with their primary care. So as you alluded, our system isn't working. And so many of us are exiting, going into second chapters, third chapters of our medical career, looking to reinvent independent medicine, which is so exciting because the pendulum is swinging. It used to be everybody was employed. Now there's a lot of people doing independent, direct primary care, concierge, membership practices, all these neat ways to deliver medicine. And so I'm glad that you're here giving a voice to what is a new field of wellness law that needs to take into account that practicality of there's different, similar, but different things that we need to consider when it comes to wellness. And this is too far of a topic today, but I noticed that in some of these spheres of wellness, whether you call it functional, holistic, integrative, when you have people that come up that aren't licensed practitioners and they're nutritionists, coaches, dietitians, they're great help and and uh good people in the area. If you don't have a medical training, it can also be dangerous because somebody comes to you with chest pain. It's not like an iron deficiency. You need to go to the ER, you know? So I'm glad that you're straddling both worlds. You're able to kind of come and make sense of this. And I'm also just glad that you're going to be teaching our catalyst mentees in my mentorship in a special guest uh, spot. And that actually accompanies the quarterly legal lounge we have with another attorney. So we get a nice, well-rounded safety net of help as we're all navigating the new frontier of medicine. Now, for the listeners listening, and they're really excited about your wellness law, where can they find you to get more information? Uh, wellnesslaw.com. Well, that's easy. That is so <laughs> yeah. easy. Now, okay, Barbara Zabawa, and you're moving from Wisconsin. You're going down to Kansas City. Um, yeah. Does this mean that you are able to help people in both locations? Oh, yes. I actually can help. I have clients all over the country. Because, um, you know, I do consulting. So a lot of this is compliance consulting. But yes, I am, I'm moving to Kansas City because I will be a 10-year track law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, but I'll still have my legal consulting business as well. So I will be available. I am so grateful and honored that we crossed paths. I'm so glad to meet you as you exit our great cheese land, dairy land state of Wisconsin. Um, and we will be in touch again as you'll be educating our catalysts. And for all listening, please check out wellnesslaw.com. Um, stay tuned. I have a feeling this won't be the first time we talk because you know this is a changing and ever-changing landscape of medicine. It's quite exciting. And I'm very hopeful, especially when you have someone like Barbara that's already been doing a lot of this support on the sidelines now coming to the forefront. So thank you again, Barbara, for sharing your hour with us. And to everybody listening, keep coloring outside the lines and like and subscribe the Catalyst Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Catalyst Podcast. If you're a functional medicine practitioner and you're curious how you can improve your business systems, automation, and scale, download my 10-page micropractice checklist. You can find it at drlarasalier.com forward slash links and keep coloring outside the lines.